Appalachian Trail starts in North Georgia and runs for 2,250 miles to northern Maine. A few months ago, I read a book called A Walk in the Woods, written by someone actually from Iowa, who tried to recount his journey as he tried to set out to hike the entire Appalachian Trail in the season beginning there around late March, early April until the fall. And what was interesting about that book, besides the antidotes that he shared about his journey there, was the question that he proposed at the beginning of the book. He remarked how each year thousands of people begin that journey of trying to hike the entire Appalachian Trail. But every year only a few hundred of those thousands actually reach their destination. And he asked the question, what do you call someone who hikes 300, 700, 1400 miles of the Appalachian Trail? Do you call them a hiker or do you call them a quitter? It's a good question. Clearly they've accomplished something, right? Hike 1400 miles. But at the end of the day, you didn't make the whole trip. And somewhat of that situation is what we find in our text today. We have the example of Peter who steps out of the boat into the storm and walks on the water a piece, but gets distracted by the waves and the wind and he sinks in the water. And Jesus has to save him from drowning. Was Peter a faither or a quitter? We'll look and see in this passage today. But before we do so, I want to remind you that we're really here on a two-week series looking at a, a portion of Scripture here right after Matthew chapter 13 where Matthew records Jesus' eight parables on what the kingdom of heaven is like. And we saw last week that Jesus, in the beginning of these parables, tells a parable about the soils. That God's Word is like seed that's spread out, cast out to be sown on different types of ground, soil. And those soils represented different responses that people give to Jesus' message. There's the hard soil, that when the seed falls on it, the birds of the airs come and snatch it away. It's the hard heart. And we saw two examples of that last week in the, as we looked at a life of rejecting Jesus. The people of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, rejected Jesus based on rational or mental reasons. They didn't think that Jesus accomplished and could be the actual Messiah. They had reasonings for that. They were wrong, but in their mind it seemed like legitimate reasons. They were hard-hearted. And then we saw the example of Herod who beheaded King John the Baptist because of his wife and some desires that he had that were inappropriate led him to reject the truth that was being taught to him. And so we've seen the, the rejection, the hardened heart. And in the examples that we see today, two of them were read, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. We see more of a mixed response to Jesus. 
we see the presence and evidence of faith, and yet it is a, a faith that's still forming. It's incomplete in some senses with looking at the crowd of people that were fed by Jesus. We know later on that this is a fickle group of people. They're not really trusting in Christ. And then we see the disciples in their interaction with this story, and we see the, the blossoming of a, of a good faith. And we see the same thing in the story when Jesus walks on the water. And then finally there in verses 34 through 36, we see a hundredfold harvest of faith. The people in Gennesaret are fully embraced and receive Jesus in his arrival. And so again, what you have here is Matthew telling that parable of the parable of the soils, and he's giving the teaching of it, and then he's actually giving examples from the ministry of Jesus that sort of are living illustrations of that unfolding for them. And so last week we saw the rejection, the hard heart, and this week we want to look at what does a life of receiving Jesus look like, and what you'll see is that it, it, there's, there's variety in that. There's very, very strong faith, and then there is a little faith. And we'll see that all of that ultimately is pleasing to God. Now, on our stories today, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, the thing that, is, that connects these stories together is the neediness of the disciples. That's the commonality between both stories. When it's the feeding the 5,000, Jesus is asking them to feed this large crowd. And Jesus is like, well, you don't have to tell them to go home. You feed them. Right? He's putting them on the spot. And then in the walking on the water, they're in this boat on the storm, and they're scared for their lives. They have a need. And the also thing that's present is that Jesus is there. When they're in a, in a, unable to feed the 5,000, Jesus steps in. When they're unable to row the boat safely to shore, Jesus steps in, right? So those are the, the, the commonality there are the, the neediness of the disciples, and the greatness of Jesus to meet their needs. And so if you want to sort of put this sermon into one sentence, we can borrow a sentence from Spurgeon here, the great Baptist preacher who said, We have a great need for Christ, and we have a great Christ for our need. Right? We have great needs like the disciples, and we have a great Christ to meet those needs. But the same is true, not only for the disciples, but the same was true for the people of Nazareth. The same was true for Herod. Their needs were just as great as the disciples, and Christ was just as powerful to meet their needs. But the difference between a life of rejecting Jesus and a life of receiving Jesus is just in that last word, right? In receiving Him. It's by believing on Him. The need's great, and Christ is great. The issue is, are we going to take advantage of what Christ offers in Himself? And so, living a life of receiving Jesus versus rejecting Him demands two things of us. And we want to look at those this morning. The first demand, if we're going to live a life of receiving Jesus, is that we must possess effective faith in Jesus' power. Effective faith in Jesus' power. And effective faith in Jesus' power looks to Jesus in the face of need. Right? We acknowledge that. We have a great need. 
But what we often will do is look to anything else or anyone else but Jesus. And a life of faith looks to Jesus to meet that need. And that's what we see happening here in this story of the 5,000. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there, right? He hears that, that Herod is considering that Jesus is the, the man that he's already beheaded, right? And so Jesus is like, all right, I don't want a political showdown here, so I need to get out of Dodge. And so he, when he hears this news about Herod, thinking he's John the Baptist raised from the dead, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So again, in one sense, the disciples are here, Jesus, we need to be considered of these people. Right? It's getting late in the day. These people are going to get hungry. We need to make sure they don't faint on the way home from a sugar dropping out here. So let's, why don't we go ahead and disperse the crowds so they can get the food that they need. Seems very thoughtful. Verse 16, But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish, right? We, 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 we don't have the resources, Jesus, to, to have this on the spot potluck here. And he said to them, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves and the two fish. And he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. You see, if we have effective faith in Jesus' power, then we will look to Jesus in the face of our need. And if we are looking to Jesus in the face of our need, then we will depend on Jesus' power to meet that need. You see, providing food in the wilderness was technically not impossible, right? We see in examples in the Old Testament where God used Moses and Elijah and Elisha for feeding miracles. And if the earlier prophets could perform such miracles, why did it not occur to the disciples that the person they're with has the ability to meet this great need? Right? It's like someone is, one commentator made the comment that it's like someone standing in front of Niagara Falls saying, I'm thirsty. I need something. I can't find anything to drink. They have this great need to feed all these people, and it never occurs in their mind, Jesus can do this. Jesus can meet the need that we have. They're coming up with some other logistical option of, let's send everyone home. And so in this story, the disciples saw the size of the need and the littleness of the human resources available. And that was an accurate depiction. We've got a great need, and we're not up to the task we can't do this. So far, so good. But Jesus recognizes the size of the need and the greatness of God's resources available to meet the need. The disciples failed to see that with them was Jesus, who has the power to provide the food necessary to feed God's people 
in the wilderness. And so if we depend on Jesus' power, we have to do that. And if we do so, we understand that God will meet needs within us in our own souls, just like he's doing with the disciples, something he's trying to teach them. Because Jesus isn't simply the one who gives what satisfies. He is the one who satisfies our greatest need. The story of the feeding of the 5,000 is, apart from the resurrection, is the only miracle that's told in all Gospels, all four Gospels. And in John's account of this, John gives some details to it. He says to them when he feeds them, the 5,000, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So when we think about we have this great need for Christ, and we have this great resource in Christ for our needs that only benefits us if we have faith in the resource, the power that is made available in Jesus. And if we depend upon that power, Jesus is going to perform a work in our own hearts, within us. Something that the disciples at this point are still grappling with and won't truly get it until after Jesus' resurrection. But when we look to Jesus in the face of need, it not only leads us to depend upon Jesus' power, it also enables us to display Jesus' compassion. You'll notice how the story begins there, that Jesus is trying to withdraw from this place to be by himself, to sort of recuperate from his ministry. But the crowds find out about Jesus' next destination. They follow him there on foot. And when he gets ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I'm tired, the last thing I want to do is meet people's needs. You've got questions, you've got concerns, well, then I'd rather not see you, <laughs> right? And so when we see these interruptions, this need that Jesus is facing, we often are led to frustration at that. Got nothing else to give. Tuckered out. My compassion tank is on empty. And Jesus, being fully human, felt those same temptations. But instead of frustrations at this need, he sees it as pastoral opportunity. And he's able to demonstrate a compassion to them. And assuming here in the story that the disciples follow Jesus' lead and help him heal the sick, to meet the needs of the people that had gathered there, and then ultimately took part in distributing the bread that Jesus multiplied. Even when he was tired, he gave of himself. Even in the face of the shallowness of this people. Jesus knew the fickleness of their heart. They were just there to be fed bread. They didn't really understand his ministry. And yet, despite that, his own tiredness, the fickleness and shallowness of the people he was ministering to, he was still compassionate to these people. 
And once we've depended on God's power so that He's done a work within us, it then allows us to display the same compassion to those who are in need so that God will meet needs of others through us. It's interesting that Jesus does say the blessing and He does perform the miracle of multiplying the bread, but Jesus never gives out a single piece of bread. Instead, He gives the bread to the disciples who then in turn distribute that to the people. They are taking part when this need is there, whether it's our own personal need or the need of others that God wants us to meet, we only can meet those needs when by faith we look to God's power as the resource to meet the needs that we either have personally or the needs that we're trying to meet with someone else. So we have a great need for Christ, and we have a great Christ for our need. But that doesn't help us unless we have an effective faith, a effective reliance upon Jesus' power. And so when we see need, we look to Jesus' power to meet it. But not only that, when we see and have fear, we look to Jesus in the face of that fear. And that's what we see unraveling in this next story. The need of the feeding of the 5,000 was a great want. We lack bread. And in this story of Jesus walking on the water, the great need there is the danger or the disaster that the disciples are facing. And we see that Jesus, through His power, meets that need. Notice the story here. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch, between 3 and 6 a.m. of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. You see, effective faith in Jesus' power not only looks to Jesus when we face need, but when we face a fear. And this is important because we're told in the Scripture time and time again that our lives are filled with opportunities for us to be fearful. When our life is on trial, when we face difficulties. The Apostle Peter in his first letter began it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He acknowledges that our faith is tested 
by these trials. And the, and the test is that they're fearful what's going to happen. It's unknown. It's uncertain. Is God going to come through? That's the fear we face. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had told the disciples that as He sends them out on their mission, and they're wanting to follow Him, that they're going to be tested. They're going to be tried by people. Matthew chapter 10 Verse 17, he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sakes to bear witness before me and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, the Spirit your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver a brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? And so before Jesus sends the disciples out on mission, He addresses these things that they're going to face that would give them anxiety and concern when people betray them, when people flog them and malign them and, and say, that, say things about them that are not true. And it's, in, it's important to see that in this very story that we just read on Walking on the Water, that as they enter into this storm, who it is that sent them into it. Right Back at the, the beginning of the story, it says immediately, He, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before Him to the other side while He dismiss, dismissed the crowds. The disciples are on that lake because Jesus told them to be there. And they're facing this storm that's come upon them. And the entire time these disciples were battling this wind and the waves of the water, Jesus was holding both the disciples and the wind in His hands. They were in the place they were at because Jesus put them there. And when we face our trials and the, the things that test our faith, that, that want to cause anxiety and fear in us about the future and what's going to happen in a situation, we're right where God has us. It's not by accident. He's sovereign over that. And Jesus is not a, unaware of what we're going through. He is familiar with our weaknesses, and He has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so in the face of fear, we trust the one who sends us into trouble. Who sends us into trouble. But we also trust the one who stays with us in our trouble. Jesus is with the disciples in this. He gives them the phrase there at the verse 27. Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Right? They're afraid because of the winds and the waves. And then on top of it, they think they see a ghost walking to them on the water. It's like, how, how much worse can this situation get? I guess if Godzilla came up out of the water, right? Make it a little worse. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus announces His presence. And this is a, a very common theme in the Scripture. We've seen that in the book of Exodus where 
Yahweh announces his presence as a means of security that they can, the people of God can accomplish what God's calling them to do. And it's not by accident that at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, the very last phrase that we're given when Jesus announces his commission to go into all the world and make disciples, he gives the phrase, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When we see fear, we trust the one who stays with us in our trouble. We also trust the one who strengthens us in our trouble. And this is what his presence announces. But then at the announcement of Jesus' presence, Peter, his interest is piqued. And the story goes on to tell us that Peter answers the Lord, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. You talk about a trial. They're having trouble rowing the boat. And Peter recognizes, wait a minute, the one who's with us I've just seen him feed 5,000 people. Jesus, let me come out to you on the water. And he does. Jesus strengthens him in the midst of this trial, this trouble that they're facing. And so recognizing that it was Jesus, Peter trusted that he could join Jesus on the water in light of the power and authority that Jesus had. And this should be a comfort to us as well to know that when we face the trials and troubles that come with life, we will not have the strength we need to do them on our own. We have great need in the face of our trials. But what we lack, Christ possesses. And as we trust Him, as we have effective faith in His power, we're able to look to Him to meet our needs, and we're able to look to Him in the face of our fears. Because what matters most, as we're going to see, is not the measure of our faith. Right? A lot of times people read this because ultimately we know the story goes on here as we've read that Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and starts looking at the winds and the waves and as a result of not relying upon Christ he gets caught up in all the trial that he's facing and he starts to sink. But the Lord saves him and says to him there in verse 31, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, some people read this and take this as a negative thing. They think Peter's a quitter and not a faither. But I think they're wrong. The phrase there, little faith, of course there's something lacking, just like the person who didn't finish the 2250 miles on the Appalachian Trail. But I'm not going to look that person who made it 1,400 miles in the face and say, you're a quitter. When I was never a starter. Little faith is better than no faith. It's better than being in the posse in Nazareth or in the palace with Herod who out flat flat rejects what he calls him to do. Peter has little faith. And that little faith enabled Peter to walk on the water when the other disciples never got that experience. 
And so before we're too quick to criticize here, we have to remember it's not the measure of our faith. Remember, the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. What matters is what you're placing that faith in. And if Jesus is where you're placing your faith, and He possesses all authority in heaven and earth, all you need is little faith to live a life of receiving Jesus. And so when we face our trials and that fear rises up, what we need is to trust the one who strengthens us in our trouble. And he strengthens us with only just a little faith that we place in him. Instead of trying to be stronger, we trust in Jesus' strength. Because as the song says, when we are weak, he is strong. And lastly, when we think about looking to Jesus in the face of fear, we not only trust the one who sends us into our trouble, who stays with us in our trouble, and strengthens us in our trouble, but we trust the one who saves us, delivers us from our trouble. As we said, Peter's failure came as he observed the wind, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was, what, afraid, fear. And beginning to sink... He cried out, Lord, save me. He looks at the natural circumstances that he's facing, taking his eyes off of God's power that was sustaining him. And this is our struggle as his disciples today. That as we face our trials, as we face our troubles, we're given these shortcuts promises, if you'll take this detour, if you'll do this, if you'll ignore what God said, there's a better way. But it's a lie. And we're taking our eyes and our trust off God's power to rely upon ourselves or upon someone else's promise or power. And when we do that, like Peter, we're going to fall. We're going to sink. We're going to have this vulnerability that Peter had towards doubting that God is a place that is worthy of putting our trust. To displace faith that relies on the supernatural God. But the good news is, when we do that, all we have to do is to cry out, Lord, save me. You see, it didn't take just faith in Jesus to walk on the water. It took faith in Jesus then when Peter thought he was drowning to call out to the only one who could save him. And that's what often happens in our lives. We distrust the Lord. And the Lord turns us over to our own resources, and that doesn't work out well. And typically when we get to rock bottom, when our head's almost under the water, we, we, we recognize our foolishness. So we say, Lord, save me. Help deliver me from this trouble. I wouldn't have been in this spot if I'd have started in the right way. But there's no reason rehashing that. Here we are. I'm about to drown. Lord, save me. And I'm thankful that the Lord saves before he scolds. He doesn't try to give Peter the lesson there, oh, you have little faith while his neck's up in water, right? He saves him. And when he gets him on the boat, he reminds him, Peter, what are you doing? You have little faith. Why did you doubt? 
I was able to help you walk on the water, and I was able to deliver you when you were up, up to your neck in it. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. We cannot lack practical confidence in God because when we do, we lose access to His supernatural provision. Right? We have great need, and we have a great Christ for our need, but if we don't have an effective faith in His power, if we don't look to Him when our need is great, when we don't look to Him when fears are, are, are on the horizon, we will lack access to that supernatural provision. We'll be out treading water on our own. So a life of receiving Jesus demands... It demands an effective faith in Jesus' power. But it also demands a second thing. It demands humble worship of Jesus' identity. And there are two identities that are given to us in this passage, particularly highlighted sort of hidden in hidden allusions in the feeding of the 5,000, but made more explicit at the ending of the walking on the water and in Jesus' own statement. And the first identity that we uncover is that Jesus is the Son of God. After the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, enabling Peter to walk on the water, and then saving Peter from his own drowning, the end of that, there in verse 32, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God. And we've seen throughout this story how Jesus fulfills this unique role of being the Son of God, the one begotten of the Father. We see, we've seen so far that He surpasses the prophets of the past. Back in the story of the feeding of the 5,000, I don't know if you caught this allusion earlier in our service, but for our prayer of confession we read from Psalm 78. And in Psalm 78, the psalmist is recounting something that happened when the people of Israel had been delivered from Egypt and they're in the wilderness without food. And they asked, Psalm 78, 19 says, They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? They, they lack, does, does God really have the power to meet our need? And this was wrong. And what do we see here? We see this large crowd of people out in a desolate place where there isn't food and access to food. And can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can Jesus do that? He tells the disciples, you do it. And they say, well, we, we, we only got two loaves and a couple fish here. And Jesus said, bring it to me. And he feeds 5,000 besides the women and children that were present. And so Jesus is doing what the prophets had done, but but on a larger scale. He's greater than Moses. Moses was used of God to bring that down, but as we saw in John 6, it wasn't Moses who brought the bread from heaven. It was God. And when Jesus comes, it's not through some secondary means that He's providing food for the people to eat. He is doing it Himself. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah who fed the widow by having the jar be filled up with oil and flour until the famine was over in the land of Israel. He's greater than the other prophet Elisha. In 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42, a man came from a city bringing a man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, Give to the men that they may eat. 
But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Elijah, are you crazy? This is only 20 loaves of bread. That's not enough to feed a hundred people. And so he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And so he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of God. Back to Matthew 14, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Moses did this, Elijah did that, Elijah did this, and guess what? Jesus too, beyond all that they could do, spreads a table in the wilderness because he is the Son of God. But not, he not only surpasses the prophets of the past, he serves the nations of the future. Jesus here is showing himself a, a preview of being the messianic host who prepares a feast for his church. Back in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus has this statement in verse 11. He says, Truly, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be th- the sons of this kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's an allusion here to this future feast that Abraham and Isaac and the people of faith will be at, and Jesus is saying, This Gentile. This man who isn't a Jew, he, he will come from the east and the west and be a part of this people that feast under the provision and presence of God, while many people who have outward Jewishness lack faith in God's power. And so Jesus is trying to help the disciples see, and this crowd that's gathered, taste and see that the Lord is good by tasting me the bread from heaven. I'm the Son of God who brings life to those who trust in me. He surpasses the prophets of the past. He serves the nations of the future. And he saves the people who trust him in the present. That's really his message to us today. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. There in the moment, rely, trust that Jesus' presence solves the problem. And Jesus saves them. As the, first, as the phrase said there, and when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. But you see, he's not only worthy of worship because he's the Son of God who surpasses the prophets of the past and serves the nations of the future and saves those who trust him in the present. Jesus is, I am. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, hopefully, if you were here and not asleep during our sermons on Exodus, right, you catch this allusion to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. It is I. It's the same phrase. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. And my presence brings my power 
Therefore, there is no need that cannot be met, and there is nothing for you to fear. It's not only seen that Jesus is the I am in this, it's also seen he is the one who brings this bread. It wasn't Moses who fed the people, it was God. And here, Jesus is feeding the people in the wilderness. And then in the story of walking on the water, this imagery of walking on water in the Old Testament was reserved for God alone. The prophets didn't do this walking on the water. In Job chapter 9 verse 8, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Psalm seventy-seven nineteen. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isaiah 43.16, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. In the Old Testament it is Yahweh who walks upon the water. And this is a metaphor, a symbol to show the Creator's control over the unruly chaos of the world. Whether it was the initial creation of the world itself or overseeing the chaos that takes place today. And Jesus comes into the chaos the disciples were experiencing, a chaos He sent them into, and He walks upon that chaos, and His presence brings peace to the situation. Throughout our lives, we face problems. We have great needs in our life. And we are promised here, a, a given a picture of a great Christ to meet our needs. The question is, will we live a life of rejecting that Christ because of our mental reasons or our moral reasons we will not trust? Or will we live a life of receiving Jesus, a life that is marked by an effective faith in Jesus' power and marked by a humble worship? of Jesus as the Son of God, as I am. That will make the difference between whether we are a little faither or a big faither, and whether we are a quitter. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the encouragement of Your Word. Father, to be reminded why Jesus is worthy of our faith. Father, there is not a need in this room. There is not a fear that anyone in this room is looking in the horizon of their future that Christ isn't aware of, doesn't have the resources to deal with. The question is, Lord, whether we will trust you whether we'll rely upon you when we face those what seemingly small trials and those mega trials. Father, you're present for each one of them. And you are worthy of our trust. And Father, you indeed are worthy of our worship. To see you faithfully come through for your people time and time again in the history of the Old Testament, we read in the New Testament, Lord, and as we can testify in our own lives. Father, we pray that as we hear these truths rehearsed about your faithfulness, that it would increase our faith in your power and in your person. So that we would, Lord, be a people who are strong, 
but not in our own strength. And it's in Christ's name we pray.